book of 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, so good morning, Landmark Church. My name is Matthew Mayer, one of the ministers here. Honored to be back in the Word of God together collectively as we study the scriptures. And those that are watching online, we appreciate you tuning in from a distance. And of course, whenever you find yourself in the area, like this couple over here from Lancaster traveling through, they stop by to join us. So God bless you and those like you who come worship God with us. We are back in the book of 1 Timothy, and you know what I'm gonna say next. If you have your Bibles, turn there in advance. I love seeing your eyes on the scriptures yourself. You, of course, can follow along with our sermon notes as they're submitted by the minister on our Church Center app. So that's accessible to you to study along with us. 1 Timothy is towards the back of the Bible. Go all the way to Revelation and perhaps scroll a little bit to the left and you'll bump right into 1 Timothy. We will complete chapter three this morning. That is verses 14 to 16. And I believe these verses, one, have been mentioned before in our study because of the content therein. I've also used these verses in other teachings because I believe in these verses, the summary of the church's message an image, of course, a reflection of Christ's message and his image, and ultimately, get this, the description of the church is found in these verses. What do you mean the description of the church? Well, we're gonna trust what the scriptures say about the church and not what culture would demand the church to be. As the culture and the world we live in but of course want the church to stay in their lane. But as we'll discover, a public truth from a public savior should be shared in the public square, in our public lives. I guess what I'm trying to say, there's nothing private about Christianity. So as we begin, a reminder, remember, this is a pastoral Epistle. It was written by Paul the Apostle to his young protege, a young minister or pastor himself named Timothy. Timothy is his proxy. If Paul can't make it to a body, a local assembly, he often sent the likes of Timothy and Titus or an accompanied letter explaining and expressing what the Spirit wanted to say to the churches. 
It's very similar to John's revelation that Jesus gave him in the book of Revelation, which the first few chapters is to the local churches. But because God's word is timeless, it's perfect for a time and it transcends even the time and it's timeless to arrive in our time. What am I trying to say? The word of God is alive. And you'll know the word of God is alive in your life when you become obedient to the scriptures, when you find yourself harnessed by heaven. That's just my metaphor of describing the Holy Spirit, the harness of heaven, the great restrainer in your life. So we feed our spirit, we strengthen our faith, which is a muscle, muscles not strengthened can become weak and even they become, they, they atrophy, they, they die. But the beautiful thing about muscles is muscle memory. And I believe some of us aren't where we should be. But don't get discouraged. Muscles have memory. Go back to where you once were when you were on fire for the Lord. What were you doing? I bet you were in the word of God. I bet you did not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. I certainly can say that you were probably using your gift, your talent, unto God's glory and to the edification of the body. I mean, that's what Paul is conveying to Timothy who will eventually translate this message to the church at Ephesus. What is being said? It's a defense of the gospel. The gospel is the full counsel of God's word. As he's defending the gospel, he's laying out doctrine and duty for the church. For the individual Christian life, doctrine to live off of and duty. How I, ready? Conduct myself in a manner worthy of my calling. Every time the church and the Christian, and they're in tandem, Every time a life or a ministry underlines the gospel, what happens by default is that which undermines the gospel is exposed. It's like a straight stick placed alongside a crooked one. And the only way to see the difference between the two is if the life, that's you, and the church, that's us, underlines the gospel in our marriages, in our families. We are underlining it, we are accentuating it, we are emphasizing it. And if we're being honest, what happens is we expose that which is in our lives, our marriages, our families, that is undermining the gospel. That which is stopping the power of the gospel from having its perfect application in our lives. Underlining the gospel always exposes that which undermines the gospel. There it is. That's the theme. We begin with the word of God proclaimed. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 and 15 as it comes. These things I write to you. Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and the ground of the truth. There's a lot here. First thing first, 
you notice Paul is telling Timothy, the reason I'm writing, the reason I've placed pen to parchment is so that if I'm delayed, if I don't make it like I've planned to, the letter is going to speak on my behalf. So there's a desire here from the Apostle Paul to come check on not only Timothy, but the Christians in Ephesus. Ephesus was an affluent Christian post in Asia Minor or Turkey, present-day Turkey. It's a very prominent first-century church, very influential in the grand scheme of church history. And here Paul is saying, here's why I'm writing to you. I'm writing you all these things. Now, there's so much that we've already covered. Now, I want you to hear me as I do this very quick review. What has Paul already written that he wants Timothy to convey in case he's delayed? Paul's emphasized several different topics in the past 48 verses. That's how many verses we've covered. To ignore a single one of them is to completely disregard what it is God has said and established for the conduct of the Christian within, quote, the house of God. The first thing that Paul lays before Timothy, chapter one, verses three to seven, guard the gates of the church, Timothy, by teaching no other doctrine. That is the first priority of the shepherd to the flock. Guard the gates. Don't let anything in that is contrary to sound doctrine, healthy teaching. He then moves his way into this interesting thought of using the law lawfully. It's how it's written. What? There were those that were using the law unlawfully? Yes. They were misusing and abusing God's law. Now, let me just be very clear. God's law is his entire counsel. Embedded within the law, of course, is the grace of the gospel. You need both. You need to understand your, in, your indictment as a sinner carries a weight, guilty as charged. And I believe the reason we're not excited about being exonerated by the gospel is because we've neglected to feel the weight of our indictment as a sinner. Does that make sense? Thank you, mom. I appreciate the affirmation. <laughs> it's true. Use the law lawfully? Yeah, remember I explained to you the law used rightly has three primary outcomes. It's punitive. It reminds you you're a sinner. It's restrictive. The law, it restrains that which is evil. It sustains that which is good. And the law in the many Psalms are instructive, guides us. Of course, the law, like a tutor, points us to Jesus, our Savior. He reminds Timothy to wage the good warfare. It's a violent expression. How do you do that? By the faith, not just having faith, the faith, which is Genesis to Revelation. I want to remind you of that. And having a good conscience, which is the word of God in your conscience. Having the knowledge of God in your conscience with moral knowledge, with spiritual knowledge. The Christian is the only one on planet Earth 
that is able to see behind the scenes, to see the unseen, spiritually speaking, because of the word of God. It's a telescope. I see that which is far off and I'm able to bring it near. I see the things that the media makes blurry and the word of God makes it clear. He says that at the end of chapter one. He begins chapter two. Remember, pray for all men. Pray for everyone. And then the category, kings and those in authority. Do you remember this? This is for the church. Pray for those in authority that are making influential decisions that are gonna affect your home, your family, your community. Pray for them, why? So that if they're making righteous decisions as they should, then you're gonna lead a quiet and peaceable life. That is not the verse to use to say Christians should always be quiet and live peaceable lives. No, because when they're making unrighteous decisions, I can't be quiet. Nor should the church, as we'll see, Paul's description and the intention of the church of Jesus Christ. God desires all to be saved. That was one of the things that was laid out in chapter two. Remember, as we made our way through chapter two, he also said, Timothy, how you gather matters. Do you remember what he said next? He was like, women, stay in your comfort zone. Do you remember that? Be mindful of what you're wearing. And he presented all these principles about outward adornment. Stay in your comfort zone. You know what I'm saying? But then he said to the men, men, come out of your comfort zone. Women, be mindful what you're wearing. Stay in your comfort zone. Men, you're too comfortable. Come out of your comfort zone. Lifting holy hands. Do you remember that? This is uncomfortable. Praying by lifting holy hands without doubt or wrath. Speaking of men and women, as he makes his way towards the end of chapter two, do not usurp nor neglect your God-given roles. Men, women, male, female, equality in God's sight, equity as far as different assets, different responsibilities, husbands in the home, fathers have different roles than mothers and wives, but when they're blended, they're one flesh and they're a reflection of God's glory. Likewise, in the home, your house and God's house. But not all men have an authority in God's house. And that's why in chapter three, what does he lay out? The qualifications of men who aspire to overseer or bishop. This is one of the ways that he says, hey, I'm telling you to underline the gospel as it applies to your life and your role, because if you don't, what will happen is you will see those who are sneaking in, creeping in, usurping authority in the church, and men who are unqualified are placed in positions of authority and leadership. And that is the quickest way to undermine the gospel in his church. Basically, into chapter three, qualifications of your elders, qualifications of your deacons, and to not follow the word of God is to cripple the church in her task, you ready? To uphold and support truth. So I said all that to say this. So you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. So you may know, knowledge, 
that goes from head to heart to hand in that order. Knowledge that descends from the head. It's not just intellect. It makes its way into the heart. And because I believe it, it comes out through my actions in my hands. This is what Paul is saying, so you may know. And then he actually adds some animation. How you ought to conduct yourself, conduct. Now, keep in mind, he's already made his way through qualifications of elders, and he ties the responsibilities in God's house, do you remember this? To how an elder leads his house. Right away, he's saying there's nothing private about your faith. In fact, if you can't rule your house, you have no business intending to or attempting to care for God's house. Very similar, he says it about deacons, which tells me Christian conduct is linear from your house to God's house. There's no separation. Linear living, it's just a cute way of saying how you live as you go from your house to God's house, to the courthouse, to the schoolhouse, and to whatever other house you can fit in. Linear living, which is derived from vertical thought process. Wait, what? Yes, I'm not just living on this horizontal plane. I am living, driven by heaven. Verses four, verse five, verse 12, all use the same word for house as you read here in verse 15, how you conduct yourself in the house of God. Question, is he speaking about a building when he references the house of God? No, he's not. And this is where we go wrong. We believe the church is a building. And I wanna remind you, you're not at church today. You are the church today. There is a huge difference between the two. Being at church, we check the box to our church attendance. We made it this week. Perhaps something else becomes more of a priority next week. And I'll get back around to going to church, completely disconnecting the fact that I am part of the church. And that's Monday through Sunday. So Paul is saying to Timothy, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a being. I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about an organism. It's alive. That's why what he says next, ready? The house of God, how you conduct yourself from your house to God's house as his people, comma, the church of the what? Living God. The church of the living God. Definition, the church that follows the life of God. The church where the living most high God indwells, tabernacles with, moves through, fills up. Now you gotta understand, not everyone that says they're part of the church is actually serving the church of the living God. There are many churches that very well, from Jesus' perspective, are dead churches. We know that because he indicts a church 
in Sardis in Revelation chapter three. And if you remember, he said to them, I know that you have a name and you think you're alive, but you're really dead. Nothing can be said more damaging to a church than for Jesus to say, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. Now, what was it about this church? What, what, what is it about other churches? Well, they're certainly not following the life of God. Very well could make a lot of traditions, which have their place. Traditions have their place if they help enrich your faith in the living God. But if traditions replace, look at me, replace the living God, that church is dead. And many churches are still living off of something that may have had life in their history, but has long since died. It's similar to what happens when a star and the travel of light for stars is what we call light years. Translation, it might take a year for the light that you see in the sky, which was put out a year ago, to eventually reach you. There could be a star in the sky or a tradition from a church that started out vibrant, alive, but because it's 30 light years away, it died 30 years ago, and you won't know it for another 30 years. That's crazy. A lot of churches have died, and yet they're still operating off of these traditions. We wanna be a church, and I love what Pastor Gene here in the front row brings, the reminder of some of the rich traditions of Christianity, but infusing into them the life of the scriptures, like hymns, like some of the sacraments, some of the things that we do to bring our faith to life. This is what it means to be the church of the living God. Now, what is a church? It's the Greek word ekklesia. I always emphasize clay as I pronounce it because I think about the potter's hands forming his clay. So the church is the ekklesia. This is the definition of the church. The called out assembly of a people. This was the first mention in the Bible of the new establishment that God was going to move through his people. Israel had their time. They missed the Messiah. He's not done with them. He put his prophetic plan for them on pause and then redirected his intentions with his church, which would be made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. And he said in Matthew 16, this is what we call in Bible studying, the principle of first mention. Anytime something's mentioned for the first time, it's got great significance. So you go back, and Jesus, out of his own mouth, said, I will build my ecclesia. All the Jews in the audience, when he said it, primary, primarily Jewish audience, this would have been revolutionary. This would have not registered with them. You wanna know why? Because the word ecclesia was a secular word. In the Greco-Roman world, they had understood the ecclesia was the gathering or the assembling of a people in a community in the city gates 
where they would make important decisions about the community itself. If the courts or the kingdom established an edict or decree, it was not uncommon for the people or the citizens to gather and discuss the implications, listen to me, of what was decided from the top down and how it would impact their individual lives. Translation, there was nothing private about the word ecclesia. It would have made more sense to the Jew's mind if Jesus said, I have come and I will build my synagogue. Oh, they understood that. That's where they gathered for the reading of Torah. It would have made sense if Jesus said, I will build my temple. They understood that. The great temple where people would travel from all over to gather, to sacrifice, it's not what he said. No, he said something that was revolutionary. Jesus here takes a word from the Greco-Roman world designated to describe the whole body of citizens in a free city-state called out by a herald for the discussion and decision of public business. Jesus took the idea behind a secular establishment and made it, you ready for it? A sacred movement. I'll build my church. Did you see the possessive? My church. Here's what happens when man claims Jesus' church. It'll be man's thoughts that make the decisions in that church. And that's what leads to being a dead church, when man's thoughts are leading the church. We wanna be a church that is deriving all thought from the word of God. I wanna know what God has to say about his church. Jesus didn't have separation of church and state in mind when he made this statement. There was nothing separate about the church. The only thing that was separate about the church were her people were to be set apart. That wasn't isolation, remove yourself from the world, those filthy sinners. No, it was an insulation. While you're embedded in the world, in world, not of world. Did you get that? In world church, not of the world. And as you're in the world, Jesus gave us ideas of our roles and responsibilities, ambassadors that are sent to a foreign country to represent the kingdom and the king who sent us with diplomatic immunity. I love that. This world can't do anything to me. I come under the governance of a different king. I think one Sunday I'm gonna do a sermon on how to clap. Watch this. It's so easy, I know. And, and as I said before, I don't need your applause, but the word of God is true and it's worthy of our response. Question, what is the purpose then of the ecclesia or these separated people? You, you see it in verse 15, the pillar and ground of the truth. What's the purpose? The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Let's take the word pillar or post in the Greek concordance. You'll see definitions like a column, a pillar, a building structure. 
a post, that which supports. Columns were used for different reasons in architecture. A lot of the times they were just for beauty, splendor, majesty. These pillars, of course, were sites to be seen, especially in Ephesus. Why would the audience in Ephesus, when they hear Paul's letter regurgitated by Timothy, describing the church as a pillar, why would all of them with wide-eyed wonder, pun intended, why would this be of great interest? Because right there in their backyard was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was the temple of Diana. She was a Greek goddess. Of course, the demon behind this goddess is just repackaged from age to age. But this is the temple of Diana. Look at the splendor. It had at least 127 pillars. And history says that each pillar was given as a tribute by a king. Think about this. But they gave the pillar in honor of themselves because it was likely their name was on one of the pillars. So they're only gifting the pillar in homage to oneself. Some of the pillars were adorned with jewels, some of them were covered in gold. If you go to Ephesus today in Asia Minor, Turkey, there's no trace of this once great temple of Diana. Let me put this together for you. The temple of Diana was a church of sorts. But the pagan world, the heathen world, would come and assembly and gather. And whether they would call it worship or not, did you know that worship is not a Christian thing? Did you know everyone worships? It's just a matter of what they're worshiping. Christians just have the right worship because we're worshiping the one true God as part of his church, the church of the living God. This temple of Diana, this pagan worship, it was really a brothel Temple prostitution took place there. Every single Christian in Ephesus, when they would have heard this letter that the church is a pillar, would have thought of that structure right there. Now, I want you to understand the transition is this. If kings contributed to that temple in honor of themselves, and yet the church is called a pillar, we're not honoring ourselves, we're honoring our king. He established his church. And we, of course, have a role to play in the midst. What is that role? Let me say it as straight as I can. The church doesn't suppose what is true. The church, like a pillar, supports what is true. The church upholds what is true. Pillars either publicized, supported, or held up some type of structure or some type of edict, and even at the top of pillars, they would place statues. Think about the church in that regard. The church supports what is true. We know what is true. We don't ask the question like Pontius Pilate in the very personification of what is true, Jesus himself. We don't ask the question, what is truth? The church is the recipient of truth. Aletheia in Greek. Aletheia. It's the word truth. You know what it means? 
has several definitions, truly, in truth, according to truth, true in any matter. One of the definitions I like the most, truth equals reality. In a world of illusion, in a world of delusion, truth is that which is consistent with reality and reality is that which is consistent with truth and our truth is the only truth and the church knows the truth and the church's responsibility, ready for it, is to rightly handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, how do we do that? Under the inspiration of the spirit of Truth, John 16, 13, when the spirit comes, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all aletheia, truth, reality. What's the primary purpose of truth? Point to the Lord of truth, Jesus. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through, it's me. We are to stand firm as the church, the pillar of truth. Pillars were also used to publicize edicts. It was not uncommon for two pillars to be placed in the marketplace, in the town square, where the court's decisions and or the kingdom's edicts were publicized like a banner so that the commoner and the citizenry would understand what came down from the top. Now, when you think about the church as that publication agent on behalf of heaven on earth, are we doing what God has called us to do, to publicize truth, to be the translator, if you will, of truth? Because the native tongue of the land is inspired, terrible word to use, incited, better word to use, by the father of lies. And people are in bondage to lies. Way worse than the temple of Diana, the kingdom of darkness. People are bowing their knee and confessing their tongue to the prince of the power of the air. And they're believing lies. And the church's role in the midst is to publicize truth, and I love the history that comes with a man named William Tyndale. And he was alive, perhaps, in the 16th century. He was a prolific writer. In fact, when you study him, you realize he spoke multiple languages fluently. And when he saw the strong arm of the Roman Catholic Church and the people who were left in the darkness about the translation of the word of God, it moved him to do something. Did you know that the Old Testament was originally translated in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, and the first translation that married the Hebrew and the Greek and turned it into the Latin Vulgate was in about the fourth century, and the Latin Vulgate presentation of the Bible was Latin, and that meant the commoner who didn't speak Latin was subjected to trust, look at me, the presentation of the clergy, Allah, AKA the Roman Catholic Church. So at that time, after a homily or a sermon or a message, the people would ponder, I suppose that's true. 
The church never supposes. The church supports what is true. Listen, I was flabbergasted at my research and trying to find biblical commentary on this verse. And it has been hijacked by Catholic, Catholic commentary. And here's why. And please forgive me if your history is Roman Catholicism, but you gotta hear the truth. The Catholic church believes the church is the source of truth. And that is why the Pope and priests and bishops and the clergymen are the only ones who can broker truth and speak. And that's why they can even change some of the timeless, unchangeable truths of God's word. The Pope has the authority in the Roman Catholic Church to do that. Translation, commoner, just accept what we say and believe it to be true. But it's not. Church is not the source of truth. Jesus is the source of truth. His word is the source of truth. And because his word is the source of truth, men like William Tyndale, they were so moved at a time where stepping out and preaching the true gospel and calling the church by name and the people to account had you labeled a heretic. So he decided to leave his hometown of England and he fled to Germany in 1524. Two years later, his first edition of his translation of the entire New Testament was complete. Two years after that, in 15, actually 10 years after that, in 1536, he was eventually betrayed. His translation was printed thanks to the print and press by Gutenberg. The translation of the word of God into English, into the common language, completely moved society at the time. People had access to read what God had to say to them and didn't have to rely on the spiritual mafia. As he was betrayed by a friend, captured by the authorities, the Holy Roman Empire labeled him a heretic. That year he was executed by strangulation and his dead body was burned. But his final words that were reported were this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He publicized truth to the end. Less than three years later, King Henry VIII, moved by the translation of the word of God, mandated that translation to make its way into many of the bodies or the assemblies at that time, seemingly answering the final prayer of one who took God at his word and was willing to be labeled, come what may, for speaking truth, for being one who translates truth with the way I live my life, one who supports and upholds truth in a world of lies. See, as the church and the Christians support the truth, it's because the truth supports the church. What do you think the greatest defense is when you're on the witness stand in the court of law? Your opinion? Your feelings? No, the truth, which is why they still should require witnesses to place their hand on the Bible and say, I testify to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That is highly spiritual and biblical. Now translate that as a witness, as a Christian. The truth is your greatest defense. Are you using it accordingly? 
Again, not a cliche to say, as a pastor, you need to spend time in the Word of God. The Word of God needs to be inside of you. We need to memorize the Word of God. We need to know what God has to say about his church and the world we live in. Now, I want, to, I want you to understand that the truth defends the church. What's the greatest defense? The truth, the gospel, the word of God. I don't shy away from it. I'm not ashamed of anything God has established in his word. And of course, the truth defines the church. Man does not define the church. The truth, which is outside of us initially. Did you, did you know that? The truth is outside of us. It's the standard outside of us. When you receive Jesus, if you don't know him, he deposits his Holy Spirit of truth inside of us, which then becomes the standard of righteousness. He takes your wretchedness, your sinfulness, he exchanges it for his righteousness and his way of living for you. And then this battle or this war on truth first inside of you is waged between your flesh and your spirit. And whichever one you feed and fuel will win the battle. And it's ultimately between truth and lies. Is the truth of God's word going to govern your life or are the lies of your flesh and your feelings going to govern your life? And feelings, as we learned yesterday in the marriage workshop, are not wrong. The goal is to bring my feelings in alignment with aletheia, truth. And when I'm able, as 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse six tells me, I'll be able to punish all disobedience when my obedience is fulfilled. When it's the spirit of the most high God that is active in my heart, my life, my family, my marriage, my ministry, my platform, my occupation. That is when I have the discernment, spiritually speaking, to support the truth. So our greatest defense is also that which we defend. Now here's the quote from Augustine. He said, let the truth out of the cage and like a lion, it'll defend itself. I love that quote. Let the truth out and let it defend itself. Well, at the same time, I understand the world wants to attack truth. So my requirement as a Christian is to also defend that which the world wants to contaminate. So I publicize the truth, but I also preserve and safeguard the truth. This is what the half-brother of Jesus told the early church, Jude 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. That means wrestle. That means fight. That means defend the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3, contend for the faith, be defenders of truth. What does that look like in your individual life? You're one who defends truth. What does that look like for your marriage? How are you defending the truth of God's word in your marriage and not letting any lies creep in? What does that look like for your family, fathers and mothers, raising children in a culture of lies? How are you one who defends Truth, God's word. How are you combating, look at me, 
the lies of the enemy, which are those fiery darts, according to Ephesians 6, that are, guess where they're aimed? They're aimed at your children, right at their mind. Because if the devil can capture their mind with lies, he can win the immediate battle. And his goal is to win the war of their soul. And parents are to be defenders. You see how excited I am about this? Because it's as real as it gets. There's nothing realer, if that's a word, than the war on truth right now. And the church's role in the midst of it is to be a pillar and support it and publicize it and defend it because there's plenty of pretenders of truth out there. They pretend. You wanna know the difference between defenders and pretenders? It's very simple. Defenders stand their ground because their ground is holy ground. No matter where they're at, they're on holy ground. They are the ambassador of the king of kings. They come under the authority of the kingdom of heaven and they are standing on holy ground and regardless of the forces of evil, the pressure of society, the peer pressure of my friends and classmates and teammates and my coworkers, I'm not moving. I'm a pillar, immovable, and I am to support the truth. That's how you know a defender of truth. Conversely, a pretender of truth, they don't stand their ground, they stand down. Why? Because their ground's not holy, their ground is hollow. There's no substance. And when the going gets tough, when the pressure is on, when the stakes are high, pretenders compromise. And it's amazing how we're able to justify our compromises. Well, I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I didn't want to offend anyone. There's a gamut of excuses when we compromise supporting the truth. Now notice the very next thing that Paul says is the pillar and the ground of truth. It's not redundant. He's giving a different angle of a pillar would support a structure, a ceiling, a roof. A pillar would be useful to display something, publicize something. And he goes to the ground of truth. He's speaking of a foundation. He's not saying the church is the foundation. We already know, and this is good Bible study, you don't take one verse and create an entire doctrine around it. It says the church is the foundation though, pastor. Yeah, but I've already learned elsewhere in scripture that Jesus is the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. The church then lives off of that foundation and we're still supporting the message and mission and image of our king. And if we're being honest, which is what truth demands, we, the church, have lost ground in the war on truth, not because the world took it. We've lost the ground because we gave it. You don't have to look far. A quick study of our own history here in America would yield and reveal a country once founded on Judeo-Christian values is now pagan through and through. Because I don't wanna get caught up in, you know, the fray of the political battle of, you know, pro-life versus pro-choice. Newsflash Christian. The God we serve is the author of life. 
And because he is pro-life and pre-life, I am also standing in alignment and supporting his truth in a culture that wants to tear that down. So we find ourselves on the sidelines. You pick your poison, you pick your cultural issue. And we justify and say, you know what? We don't wanna get involved in all that because we don't wanna be labeled blank. So what do we do? Well, churches, true churches or false churches are never neutral. This is the craziest part. We're either accelerating and being willing to be the remnant, the minority in the midst of a very loud and godless majority and the minority is willing to stand their ground because their ground is holy ground or the fake church goes, we're not gonna get involved in that, and they're not neutral, they eventually go the other way. And they begin to, ready, what the church never does, affirm unrighteousness. The church is only supposed to ever affirm righteousness. My heart is not about making earth heaven, it will never be. My heart is bringing heaven to earth. It's one of the missions of the Christian, and the word of God is heaven's plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? Helps measure that which is horizontal and vertical. A plumb line, you drop it, you can see if the structure is off balance. The word of God is heaven's plumb line. And with the word of God, here's what happens. You'll be able to see what's crooked and what's straight. Without the word of God, you can't tell what's crooked or what's straight. In fact, because it's never neutral, Without the word of God, what's crooked is called straight, and what's straight is called crooked. And what's good is called evil, and what's evil is called good. An upside down world makes a way for man to be a woman and a woman to be a man. An upside down world does not protect the borders of a woman's womb, but evil doctors will invade and destroy. An upside down world does not want sexual order, order, moral order, biological gender order. An upside down world doesn't even want national order, a la border. And that's why, here's, let me help you. Anytime you see an invasion, an invasion of the womb, an invasion of someone's gender, an invasion of someone's sexuality, an invasion of national borders. You're watching the enemy at work and you're watching whether or not the church is gonna stand up and support the truth. See, the most important yardstick by which a church and a Christian can be measured. The church, not how large it is, not how well attended it is, not how sweet the fellowship and friendships may be, not how cool the pastor is, I know, hold your applause, <laughs> not how good the music is, not how well the spaces are organized, not how respected they are in the community. The most important measuring stick of any church is how they handle the word of truth. And then conversely, the most egregious act against God is then how someone would mishandle the word of truth. To mishandle the word of truth is to present a perverted message to the world. 
To mishandle the word of truth is to present and portray a perverted image of Christ to the world. The foundation of our society is crumbling. You wanna know why? Because the church is not meant to be popular. The church is meant to be a pillar. Popular goes with the way of the world, with the fads, with the trends, with the political correct narrative. That church is the church of a dead God. The true church is a pillar. And because truth does not change, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that church will stand. What's the message? It's verse 16. It's, it's amazing. It's like Paul, you ready? It's like he, it's like he hears music. As he's writing about the description of the church, he breaks into song. Many Bible scholars believe verse 16 is an ancient Christian hymn. It was one of the ways they would pass down doctrine. Just keep in mind, not everybody had access to the original writings. If a letter came to the local body and it was read, that was a blessing. A lot of the times, they would take those very letters because they weren't able to transcribe them, but they would leave because our mind, like a muscle, is able to remember things when it comes in song. Did you know that? And that's why, side note, the devil has hijacked music. It's one of the ways he reaches the next generation because they're able to memorize the dark lyrics of lies, which is why our responsibility when we worship with music is to sing truth to God. Amen? Okay. He breaks into a hymn, and the hymn is this. Ready? And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And this is the stanzas to the hymn. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. I love that. Think about what was just laid before us. This is the entire body, pun intended, of the life, ministry, message of Jesus Christ himself. This is the gospel encapsulated in one singular verse. This is the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Listen to it. Without controversy among Christians, nothing to debate here. Great, magnificent is the mystery, the unveiling. It's not something you can't know. It's something that you can now know of godliness. What is the unveiling of godliness? God was manifested in the flesh. One word. From Revelation, you get incarnation, the incarnation of God, that he became man, truly God, truly man, manifested in the flesh. His entire life and ministry was justified in the spirit. That's sanctification. Revelation, incarnation, sanctification. When was he justified in the spirit? He was never a sinner, so he wasn't justified as we are. The validation or justification of the spirit it happened multiple times that we have access to. The first was when the spirit fell from the heavens like a dove at Jesus' baptism, right? And the father's audible voice complimenting the spirit of truth falling upon the son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The next time the spirit would validate in that order was when the father's thunderous voice from heaven in response to Jesus saying, glorify your name. I've glorified, I'll glorify it again. He eventually went to the cross, he died. And the validation that he was who he said he was and that he paid your sin debt in full was the fact that he got up out of that grave. 
He was justified in the spirit. It says he was seen by angels. Did you know angels had a great part to play in the life and ministry of Jesus? Did you know that angels announced his eventual arrival to Mary and Joseph? Did you know angels spent time talking to the shepherds about his arrival? Did you know when he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights and at the end of that temptation and the enemy came hot, did you know that after his weakness, it says the angels came and strengthened him? Do you know when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he was praying, Father, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, your will be done. Did you know at his point of weakness, it says angels, angels came and ministered to him. Did you know that when he got up out of that grave, and the tomb was empty. Did you know it was angels that were waiting to announce it? Did you know that he said, I gotta go, I'll be back. I'll be back, the original, I'll be back guy. He went to the heavens, he ascended into the heavens. Did you know that angels were there and they turned and said, what are you guys looking at? Just as he went, he will return. That's what it means when he was seen by angels. Of course, preached among the Gentiles. Jesus was preached believed on in the world, revelation, incarnation, sanctification, examination, proclamation, believed on in the world, salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And ultimately, ascension. He went back. He sits at the right hand of the Father. I said this on Wednesday night. I'm gonna say it to this assembly. If the head is in power, should the body cower? If the head is in power, when the head is in power, the body does not cower. If our head, Jesus, is in power in heaven, then what is the body cowering for? What are we afraid of? What are we fearful of? We do not cower. Next Sunday, Lord willing, I'm gonna show you how what we just covered in this ancient hymn can also be applied to the church. In other words, 1 Timothy 3.16, as we just read it, is a succinct summary of everything of even the body of Christ from our earthly formation to our heavenly destination. And we'll begin next week's study looking at the revelation of our message, the incarnation, God with us in his church, the sanctification of the church and the people that make up the church, the examination of even angels which are assigned to us as ministering. Did you know that? Angels are assigned to us the proclamation of the gospel, the salvation in our life, in the world's life, and of course, our eventual ascension, whether I go to him or he comes to me. Final quote, G.K. Chesterton said this, we do not want a church that will move with the world. No, we do not. We want a church that will move the world. Paul was traveling relentlessly he eventually made his way to a city called Thessalonica. When he entered Thessalonica, he had accompanied with him Silas and Timothy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul would go into the synagogues where he would meet the Jews of that town. He would contend for the truth. Their minds were primed and prepared they understood the holy old scriptures. They thought he was coming with new revelation. He was just coming with what tied the old to the new as we know it. Sometimes people came to know Jesus Christ and were saved. Jews became part of the church, Jews and Gentiles. 
Sometimes the Jews were enraged as they were with Jesus himself. And they sought to persecute the messengers. Paul, Silas, and Timothy eventually make their way to somebody named Jason's house. Which is not your house. And here was the indictment on them. You ready for this? These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They weren't happy about it. Their arrival had completely flipped upside down their society and culture. But when you understand what truth does, they got it wrong. They were living in an upside down world. Their right was left, their left was right. It's what sin and lies do. When the gospel came, it turned their upside down world right side up. And that's ultimately what the kingdom of heaven on earth does. It turns that which is upside down, right side up. And now you're living right side up and you can identify what's upside down. And those that are upside down can't see straight to know what's right side up or upside down. Are you getting what I'm putting down? And this entire message is built upon but one foundation, in Christ alone. In Christ I stand. It's the message that has completely changed the world. It's the message that has changed our world. It's the only truth that can bring security, stability to a marriage. It's the only truth that can preserve the creative order of the family. It's the only truth, and this is important, that can save the soul. No other truth. This is what it means to be the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So we're gonna sing one final song, a hymn, appropriate because we just studied one. And I would ask you to sing loud and proud as a representation of being those that support truth. Dear church, this is your charge. And since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it. By God's grace, let's do it. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Would you be well pleased with your assembly of people, called out, separated? We wanna be a church that is filled with your Holy Spirit, those that espouse your truth so we get out of the way for you to have your way. In Christ alone, I pray, amen.